0: Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com Wondery.
1: You had to tell a lot of
2: lies. Absolutely. I was living a lie. Were you a good liar? The best. I
1: think Tonight, we're going to bring you a spy story unlike any other about a KGB agent who operated in the United States during the last decade of the Cold War. What's remarkable is that he's never spent a night in jail, the Russians declared him dead a long time ago, and he's living a quiet life in upstate New York, free to tell his story, as honestly as a former spy ever can.
2: Did you think you were gonna get away with this? Yeah, otherwise I wouldn't have done it.
3: (laughs) Max, agent, make me rich. Thanks a lot. (laughs)
4: Li Na is one of the wealthiest female sports figures in the world. She's probably China's most famous athlete and an idol to young Chinese, not only because of her abilities, but because of the way she stood up to the Chinese system. I didn't care about the obstacles. I was just heading towards my goal. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Morley Safer. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight
5: on 60 Minutes. 90%. That's the percent of your life that you're in your underwear. And underwear gets old fast. You know that feeling of putting on old saggy underwear. Now you need to know the feeling of great fitting underwear that is two times softer than cotton. You need to know about MeUndies.com. MeUndies has the most comfortable underwear you will ever try on and it's insane how good they make you feel. They fit perfectly, they don't ride up on you, and they literally pull moisture away from your skin so you stay cool. But they also make you look great. Go to MeUndies.com and check out the photography. And for the girls, check out those smoking hot boy shorts. But you have to try them on for yourself. This quality would typically retail for two times the Me Undies price. No retail middlemen means more savings for you. Here, we'll make it easy. Go to slash 60 and get 20% off your first order and low flat rate international shipping. Save even more when you buy a pack of them. They guarantee you're going to be happy with them or your first pair is free. Once you feel MeUndies on your body, you're never going back. And MeUndies isn't just for you guys. They just launched their All of Me Women's collection, a four-piece line of undies designed specifically for the female body in all of its complex, gorgeous-as-hell glory. But to get that 20% off, you have to go to MeUndies.com 60. That's MeUndies.com slash S-I-X-T-Y.
1: Tonight, we're going to bring you a spy story unlike any other. And if you think your life is complicated, wait till you hear about Jack Barski's, who led three of them simultaneously. One as a husband and father, two as a computer programmer and administrator at some top American corporations, and three as a KGB agent spying on America during the last decade of the Cold War. The FBI did finally apprehend him in Pennsylvania, but it was long after the Soviet Union had crumbled. As we first reported in May, What makes Jack Barsky's story even more remarkable is that he's never spent a night in jail, and the Russians declared him dead a long time ago. He's living a quiet life in upstate New York and has worked in important and sensitive jobs. He's now free to tell his story as honestly as a former spy ever can.
2: So who are you? Who am I? (laughs) That depends when the question is asked. Right now I'm Jack Barsky. I... Work in the United States. I'm a U.S. citizen, but it wasn't always the case.
1: How many different identities do you have?
2: I have two main identities: a German one, and an American one. What's your real name? My real name is Jack Barsky. In what name were you born with? Uh, Albrecht Dietrich. Say that three times real fast. Just say it once slowly. <laughs> Albrecht Dietrich.
1: How Albrecht Dietrich became Jack Barsky is one of the untold stories of the Cold War, an era when the real battles were often fought between the CIA and the KGB. Barsky was a rarity, a Soviet spy who posed as an American and became enmeshed in American society. For the 10 years he was operational for the KGB, no one in this country knew his real story, not even his family. Did you think you were going to get away with this? Yeah, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) What Barsky did can be traced back to East Germany, back to the days when he was Albrecht Dietrich. A national scholar at a renowned university in Jena, Dietrich was on the fast track to becoming a chemistry professor, his dream job.
2: didn't work out that way because I was recruited by the KGB to do something a little more adventurous. Spy. We called it something different. We used a euphemism. I was going to be a scout for peace a kgb scout for peace that is correct the communist spies were the good guys and the capitalist spies were the evil ones so we didn't use the word spy
1: he says his spying career began with a knock on his dorm room door one saturday afternoon in 1970. A man introduced himself claiming to be from
2: a prominent optics company He wanted to talk with me about my career, which was highly unusual. I immediately, there was a flash in my head, and said, that's Stasi. East German secret police. East German secret police, yeah.
1: It was a Stasi agent. He invited Dietrich to this restaurant in Jena, where a Russian KGB agent showed up and took over the conversation. The KGB liked Dietrich's potential because he was smart, his father was a member of the Communist Party, and he didn't have any relatives in the West. Dietrich liked the attention and the notion he might get to help the Soviets. And what did
2: you think of America? It was the enemy. And, and the reason that the Americans uh, did so well was because they exploited all the third world countries. That's what we were taught and that's what we believed. We didn't know any better. Was, I, I grew up in an area where you could not receive West German television. Uh, it was called the Valley of the Clueless. For the next couple of years, the
1: KGB put Dietrich through elaborate tests, and then in 1973, he was summoned to East Berlin to this former Soviet military compound. The
2: KGB, he says, wanted him to go undercover. At that point, I had passed all the tests, so they wanted, they made me an offer. But you've been thinking about it all along, That's true. With one counterweight, in that you didn't really know what was going to come, uh, is how do you test drive? becoming another person. It was a difficult
1: decision, but he agreed to join the KGB and eventually found himself in Moscow undergoing intensive training.
2: A very large part of the training was operational work. Determination as to whether you're being under surveillance, Morse code, uh, shortwave radio reception. I also learned how to do micro dots. A micro dot is, uh, uh, you know, you take a picture and make it uh, so small with the use of a microscope that you can put it under uh, a, 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 a postage stamp. The Soviets were looking
1: to send someone to the U.S. who could pose as an American. Dietrich showed a command of English and no trace of an East German accent that might give him away. He learned a
2: 100 new English words every day. It took me forever. I, I did probably a full year of, uh, uh, of uh, phonetics training. The, the difference between hot and hot Right, that, that's very difficult, and, and most Germans don't get that one. Do you want to go to the United States? Oh yeah, <laughs> sure. It was New York, there was San Francisco, and you know, we heard about these places.
1: Your horizons were expanding. Oh, absolutely.
2: Now I'm really in the big league, right? You know.
1: <laughs> Dietrich needed an American identity, and one day, a diplomat out of the Soviet embassy in Washington came across this tombstone just outside of D.C with the name of a 10-year-old boy who had died in 1955.
2: The name was Jack Philip Barsky. And they said, guess what? We have a birth certificate, we're going to the US. And that was the Jack Barsky the birth Jack certificate? The Jack Barsky birth certificate that somebody had obtained and I was given. I didn't have to get this myself. Did you feel strange walking around with this identity of a, of a child? No. No. When you do this kind of work, some things you don't think about, because if you explore, you may find something you don't like.
1: The newly minted Jack Barsky landed in New York City in the fall of 1978, with a phony backstory called a legend and a fake Canadian passport that he quickly discarded. The KGB's plan for him was fairly straightforward. They wanted the 29-year-old East German to get a real U.S. passport with his new name, then become a businessman, then insert himself into the upper echelons of American society, and then to get close to National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski so that he could spy on him.
2: That was the plan. It failed. Why? Because uh, I was not given very good instructions with regard to how to apply for a passport.
1: When he went to apply for a passport at Rockefeller Center, Barsky was thrown off by the list of questions.
2: Specific details about my past for which I had no proof So I walked out of it. Did the KGB
1: have a pretty good grasp on the United States and how things worked there?
2: No. No? Absolutely not. They made a number of mistakes uh, in terms of uh, giving me advice what to do, what not to do. Uh, They just didn't know.
1: Left to fend for himself in a country the KGB didn't understand, he got himself a cheap apartment and tried to make do with a birth certificate and $6,000 in cash the Soviets had given him. His spying career at that point more resembled the bumbling Boris Badenov than James Bond. So you were working as a bike messenger? Right. That doesn't sound like a promising position for a spy. No, but uh, (laughs) there there were a lot of things that I didn't know. So how close did you ever get to Brzezinski? (laughs) Not very. (laughs) To get a social security card, which he would
2: need if he wanted a real job, Barski knew he would have to do some acting. It was unusual for a 30-plus-year-old person to, to say, you know, I don't have a social security God, give me one. So in order to make my story stick, I made my face dirty, so I looked like somebody who just came off a farm. It, it worked. The lady asked me, she said, so how come you, you, don't, uh, you, you don't have a card? And when the answer was, I didn't need one, why? Well, I worked on a farm. And that was the end of the interview. The Social Security card enabled him to enroll at Baruch College in Manhattan,
1: where he majored in computer systems. He was class valedictorian, but you won't find a picture of him in the school yearbook. In 1984, he was hired as a programmer by Metropolitan Life Insurance, where he had access to the personal information of millions of Americans. You were writing computer code? Right, yes. Lots of it. And I was really good at it. What he didn't write, he stole. On behalf of the
2: KGB. What was the most valuable piece of information you gave them? I would say that that was the computer code because that was a very prominent piece of industrial software still in use today. This was IBM code? No comment. You want to say? No. <laughs> um, it was good stuff let's it was put it good. this way yeah
1: it was helpful to the
2: soviet it, union it would have been helpful to the soviet union and, and, and their running organizations and, and factories and so forth how often did you communicate with the russians i would get a radiogram once a week a radiogram meaning a radiogram means the transmission that was on a certain frequency at a certain time
1: every thursday night at 9 15 barsky would tune into a shortwave radio at his apartment in queens and listen for a transmission he
2: believed came from Cuba. All the messages were encrypted, that they became digits. And the digits would be sent over as, uh, in groups of five. And sometimes that took a good hour to just write it all down and then another three hours to decipher.
1: During the ten years he worked for the KGB, Barsky had a ready-made cover story. Would somebody ask you that? You know, where are you from, Jack? What did you say?
2: I'm originally from New Jersey. I was born in Orange. Mm, that's it. American. Nobody ever questioned that. People would question my. You, know, you have an accent, but my my comeback was, Yeah, my mother was German, and we spoke a lot of German at home. You had to tell a
1: lot of lies.
2: Absolutely, I was living a lie.
1: Were you a good liar? The best. You had to be a good liar to juggle the multiple lives he was leading. Every two years, while he was undercover for the KGB, Barsky would return to East Germany and Moscow for debriefings. During one of his visits to East Berlin, he married his old girlfriend, Gerlinda, and they had a son.
2: Did that complicate matters? Initially, it wasn't complicated at all. It got complicated later. Because because I got married in the United States to somebody else. (laughs) Did she know about your other wife in Germany? No.
1: Did your wife in Germany know about the... Not at all. So you had two wives?
2: I did. I was officially a bigamist. That's that's the one thing I am so totally not proud of. Being a spy was all right. Being a bigamist... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in, in hindsight, you know, I was a spy for the wrong people, but, uh, but I, this one hurt because I had promised my German wife that, you know, we would be together forever. And I broke that promise. And the one way I can explain that to myself is I had, I had separated the German, the Dittrich, from the Barsky to the point where the two just didn't know about each other. Not only did he have two
1: different identities and two wives, he had a son named Matthias in Germany and a daughter named Chelsea in America. And by November 1988, a radiogram from the KGB would
2: force him to make an excruciating choice. I received a radiogram that essentially said, you need to come home, your cover may soon be broken and you are in danger of being arrested by by the American, American authorities. Barsky was given
1: urgent instructions from the KGB to locate an oil can that had been dropped next to a fallen tree just off this path on New York's Staten Island. The fake passport and cash that he needed to escape the United States and return to East Germany would be
2: concealed inside the can. I was supposed to pick up the container and go on, leave. Right. Not even go back home to the apartment, just disappear. The container wasn't there. I don't know what I would have done if I had found it, but I know what I did when I didn't find it. I did not tell them, repeat the operation. I made the decision to stay. Why? Because of Chelsea. Your daughter? Yes. If Chelsea is not in the mix, that's a no-brainer. I'm out of here. Barsky had chosen Chelsea over Matthias. I had bonded with her. It was a tough one because... On the one hand, I had a wife and a child in Germany. But if, if I don't take care of Chelsea, she grows up in poverty.
1: This may be a little harsh, but it's, it sounds like the first time in your life that you thought about somebody besides yourself.
2: You're absolutely right. I was quite an, an egomaniac. I was.
5: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
1: At the end of 1988, Jack Barsky's 10-year run as a clandestine KGB agent in the United States was about to come to an end. He had ignored Soviet warnings that his cover had been blown and decided to remain in America and not return to his native East Germany. He was taking a chance that no one in America would ever find out who he really was. And he was taking a bigger chance that the KGB wouldn't retaliate for disobeying an order. The urgency with which the Soviets seemed to view the situation became clear one morning in Queens. Jack Barsky says he was on his way to work in December 1988, standing and waiting for an A
2: train on this subway platform when a stranger paid him a visit. There's this character in a a black coat, and he sidles up to me and he whispers in in my ear, says, You gotta come home or else you're dead. And then he walked out. Russian accent? Yes. That's an incentive. It's an incentive to go. (laughs) I mean, spies get killed all the time. They do. But not me. The entire time, I always had this childlike belief that everything would be all right. So what are you going to tell the Russians? Well, I, I sent them uh, this Dear John letter, the goodbye letter, in which I stated that I had contracted AIDS and that the only way for me to get a, a treatment would be in, in the United States. You just wrote them a letter and said, I can't come back, I've got AIDS? <laughs> There's three things I, I tell people that the Russians were afraid of. Uh, uh, AIDS, Jewish people, and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> And they were deathly, In that order? Uh, I think Ronald Reagan took the, the top spot. They thought he would push the button. The AIDS letter apparently worked because in East Berlin, the Soviets told his German wife, Gerlinda, he wasn't coming back. They went to Gerlinda and told her that I had died of AIDS. So I think they just wrote me off completely. You were officially dead in East Germany? After five years, she was able to declare me as mm-hmm. dead. All Once
1: the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union fell apart, Barsky was a man without a country. No one would want him back. He felt his secret was safe in America. He became a family guy with a wife, two kids, Chelsea and Jesse, and a job. He burrowed himself into suburbia, keeping a low profile.
2: I was settling down. I was living in in rural Pennsylvania at the time in a nice house with two children. It was like typical middle-class existence. And his life
1: would have stayed quiet if a KGB archivist named Vasily Matrokin hadn't defected to the West in 1992 with a trove of notes on the Soviet spying operations around the world. Buried deep in his papers was the last name of a
6: secret agent
1: the KGB had deployed somewhere in America, Barsky. We
6: were concerned that he might be running an agent operating in the federal government somewhere. Uh, Who knows? In the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, we had no idea.
1: Joe Riley was an FBI agent when the Bureau got the Matrokin tip, and the Barsky case quickly became serious enough that FBI Director Louis Free got personally involved. The FBI didn't know who or where he was, but the best lead seemed to be a Jack Barsky, who was working as an IT specialist in New Jersey with a suburban home across the border in Mount Bethel, Pennsylvania. Aside from his name. Was there anything else that made you suspicious
2: and make you think that this was the guy you were looking for?
6: Yes. Uh, One thing was the fact that he had applied for a Social Security number late in life, especially someone like him who was educated and intelligent.
1: The FBI began following Barsky, and when this surveillance photo caught him talking to a native of Cuba, the Bureau grew
2: increasingly concerned. There were some indications that I could possibly be the head of an international spy ring because I had a friend who was originally from Cuba. And it so happened that (laughs) this friend owned an apartment that was rented to a Soviet diplomat. So that one raised all kinds of flags, and they investigated me very, very, very carefully. FBI agent Joe Riley went so far as to set up an observation
1: post on a hillside behind Barsky's house. This is a picture he took of his view.
6: I got... A telescope and binoculars as if i was a bird watcher but i was looking at his backyard and at him over time i learned a great deal about him like what just watching him well I, I became convinced that he loved his children uh and that was important because i wanted to know if he would flee there was less chance of that if, if he was devoted to his children and he was
1: But that wasn't enough for the FBI. The Bureau bought the house next door to get a closer look at the Barskis. Did you get a good deal?
6: (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, we paid what he was asking. (laughs) (laughs) And we had agents living there so that we could be sure who was coming and going from his house without being too obvious in our surveillance.
1: You had no idea the FBI was living next door to you? (laughs) No. (laughs) Never saw... Um, No. Joe Riley up on the hill with the binoculars? Absolutely not. When the FBI finally got authorization from the Justice Department to Bug Barsky's home, the case
6: broke wide open. Within, I'd say, the first two weeks that we had microphones in his house, he had an argument with his wife in the kitchen. And during the course of that dispute, he readily admitted that he was an agent operating from uh, the Soviet Union.
1: It was all the FBI needed to move in on Barsky. They set a trap for him at a toll bridge across the Delaware River as he drove home from work late one Friday afternoon in
2: May of 1997. I'm being waved to the side by a state trooper, and he said, we, we, we're doing a routine traffic check. Would you please get out of the car? I get out of the car, and uh, somebody steps up from, from behind and, and, and shows me a badge, and he said, FBI, we would like to talk to you. His
6: face just dropped, and we told him that he had to go with us.
2: The first words out of my mouth were, am I under arrest? And the answer was no. Now that took a big weight off of me, so I figured there was a chance to get out of this in one piece. (laughs) And the next uh, question I asked, so what took you so long?
1: The FBI had rented an entire wing of a motel off Interstate 80 in Pennsylvania for Barsky's interrogation.
6: But on the way to the motel, I remember turning to him and I told him that this didn't have to be the worst day of his life. And he
2: immediately realized that he had an out. I said to them, listen, I know I have only one shot out of this and that means I need to come clean and be 100% honest and tell you everything I know. The FBI questioned Barsky throughout the weekend and gave him a polygraph test that he passed.
1: Convinced that his spying days were over and that his friendship with the Cuban was just that, the FBI decided to keep the whole thing quiet and allowed Barsky to go back to work on Monday morning.
6: Was he charged with something? Uh, no.
1: Even though he had confessed to being a Soviet spy? Yes. That seems odd.
6: Well, we wanted him to cooperate with us. Uh, we didn't want to put him in jail. He was no use to us there.
1: Barsky continued to meet not only with the FBI, but with the National Security Agency to offer his firsthand insights into the KGB
2: and the Russians. I was able to provide him with a lot of valuable information on how the KGB operated. The only people who were aware of his secret were the FBI
1: and Penelope, his wife in America, who eventually divorced him. His daughter, Chelsea, then a teenager, knew only that he wanted to tell her something when she turned 18. That day finally arrived on a four-hour drive to St. Francis
3: University. He started chuckling to himself and he said, well, I'm a, I was a spy. I was a KGB spy. I was like, what? <laughs> really?
1: Jack also revealed to Chelsea why he had decided to stay in America.
3: He said that, you know, he fell in love with me and my my curls when I was a little baby, and then I cried.
1: Did he tell you everything?
3: No, he didn't. He didn't tell me 100% the whole truth. He left some things out at that point.
2: I told her everything that you can tell in four hours that is (laughs) age-appropriate. She was still a teenager. I may not have told her that I was married in Germany. He waited another two
1: years before he matter-of-factly dropped another bombshell about his past.
3: He just looked straight ahead at the TV, and he said, did I tell you you have a brother? (laughs) And I turned my head. I'm like, what? (laughs) Are you serious?
1: The half-brother was Matthias, the boy Jack had left behind in Germany. Chelsea was determined to find him. Jack didn't like the idea. I
2: did not feel comfortable uh, getting in touch with him. I did not feel comfortable with my acknowledging my German past. After a year of trying to track him
1: down online, Chelsea finally got a reply from Matthias.
3: The subject line said, dear little sister. <laughs> and when I saw dear little sister, I just started weeping because that meant everything to me. That meant that he accepted me.
1: And this is me. A month later, Matthias was in Pennsylvania visiting Chelsea and her brother Jesse. They hit it off. Matthias wasn't interested in seeing his father and changed his mind.
2: Was it awkward? (laughs) I just remember he stared at me for a couple of minutes. He just stared at me. I mean, he had reason to be angry with you. When I told him the dilemma that I was faced with, he actually said, I understand. And what's your relationship like
1: with uh, Matthias now?
2: He feels like he is my son.
1: Gerlinda, the wife in Germany who thought he was dead, wants nothing to do with Jack today or with 60 Minutes.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: He has remarried and has a four-year-old daughter. They live in upstate New York, where Jack has worked as director of software development for a company that manages New York's high-voltage power grid, a critical piece of U.S. infrastructure. When he told his employer recently that he had once been a KGB spy, he was placed on a paid leave of absence and then fired, before becoming an American citizen last year he'd been given a clean bill of health by the FBI and U.S. intelligence agencies. But in the world of espionage, it's often difficult to tell what's true and what's legend. Are you telling the truth
2: right now? I am absolutely the truth as far as I know it. Yes. As far as you know it? Well, you know, sometimes memory fails, you, know, but I am, I am absolutely not holding back anything. Why tell the story now? I want to meet my maker clean. I need to... Get clean with the past. I need to digest this fully.: <coughs> All right, take your Mulligan already. <laughs>
1: the FBI agent who apprehended him, Joe Riley, still believes in Barsky, and then yet another twist to the story. The two are good friends and golfing buddies.
6: He's a very honest person, and if you want to find out how honest someone is, play golf with them. But you're a former FBI guy, and he's a former spy.: Yeah. What's the bond? It's personal. He credits me for keeping him out of prison.
1: (laughs) After nearly 30 years, Jack Barsky went back to visit a unified Germany, first in October, then again in April. So that was essentially the very beginning of my career. He showed his kids where this improbable tale began and some other key settings in his odyssey. And he caught up with old classmates who knew him as Albrecht Dietrich.
2: When you're here in Germany, uh, are are you uh, Albrecht or are you uh, Jack? No, I'm Jack. I I am 100% Jack. You know, I let the way out, out, and sometimes he interferes, but they, they get along very well now.
1: The Berlin Wall, which once divided east and west, is now gone except for a section that has been turned into an art display. Checkpoint Charlie, once the epicenter of the Cold War, is now a tourist attraction full of kitsch. Statues of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels still stand in the eastern part of Berlin, relics of another era, as is the man who straddled two worlds and got away with it.
5: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
4: It's not unusual for tennis stars to have been groomed from an early age by hard driving parents. Andre Agassi had his father, Mike, Martina Hingis, her mother, Melanie. Chinese champion Li Na, who became one of the highest paid and most watched female athletes in the world, had a tennis parent too. Hers was her country's state-run sports system. As we first reported earlier this year, Li Na is remarkable, not just because she won two grand slams but because she stood up to the Chinese authorities to win some freedom. When Li Na reached the finals of the French Open in 2011, 116 million people were watching her back home in China. They were hoping she would make history and become the first Chinese citizen ever to win a Grand Slam tennis tournament.
3: And with this point, she did. I was lying on the ground, and a hand was in her face, and I saw, wow, blue sky. And I tried to cry, but I cannot, because it's so exciting.
4: It was the crowning achievement of her career up to that point. But she had barely lowered the trophy when she was accused of being ungrateful by failing to properly thank her country for making the victory possible. One headline... Called it China's victory. They felt that the country had put so much money and effort into training you that it was their victory. You just didn't see it that way. What did you do? I just thought I was fulfilling my dream. As she told us in both Chinese and English, she felt it was her victory as an individual, not as part of a collective. By then, Li Na had been questioning the Chinese mindset and standing up to the authorities for years. You looked, to me anyway, to be incredibly brave. You challenged the way things were. and You were just a little girl, you know, you were just one person. Because I had a goal. I didn't care about the obstacles. I was just heading towards my goal. She inherited the goal from her father, who had enrolled her in China's sports system at an early age, hoping she would follow in his footsteps and play badminton. She wasn't very good, and a coach suggested she try tennis. Did your parents even know what tennis was? No. No.
3: I remember my parents used to call it fuzzy ball. They didn't even call it tennis. Because back then, not many people in China
4: knew about tennis. By the time she was eight, she was practicing six days a week on these courts in the provincial city of Wuhan. Lina lived with other players in a Spartan state-run sports school. That's her on the upper right with the short cropped hair. You look like a little boy. Yeah. Did that bother you? No. What did bother her was the constant stream of criticism from her childhood coach, Yuli Chao, seen here grabbing
3: her arm. The way she speak everyone thinks she's pretty angry you know yeah yeah so I was like scared she was always making you feel
4: you weren't good enough
3: yep push me a little bit
4: you hated her yes (laughs) the coach's brutal method was hardly unusual in the Chinese sports system which was modeled on the Soviet Union. To this day, China operates a vast network of sports academies that have been criticized for overtraining their young athletes, causing psychological stress, and providing inadequate education. At 15, Li Na became the youngest person ever to win the National League singles finals. But she was lonely and depressed. Her father had died, and her mother had fallen deeply in debt. The one bright spot in her life was a romance with a fellow player on the provincial tennis team, her mixed doubles partner and future husband, Jang Shan, a.k.a. Dennis. Did you have to keep it secret in the beginning?
3: No secret for everyone. I think maybe only the coach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: the only Co- the coach. <laughs> yeah, only the coaches. So you did have to keep it secret from the coach.
5: No, no I think the coach didn't ask, and we didn't answer. Yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> but as time went on, Lena started feeling bullied by the sports system. During this ceremony in 2001, the official who placed the medal around her neck slapped her after she came in third. A few months later, Lena quit walked away from tennis altogether. But the tennis authorities begged her to come back, so a year and a half later she returned and her career took off. At the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, she upset Venus Williams in the quarterfinals. And the crowd went wild. She was popular. Fans liked her. She wasn't like other typically stoic Chinese athletes. When she lost a big match, you knew it hurt. And she also had a firecracker temper. In the Olympic semifinals in Beijing, she got so angry with her home country fans who were shouting encouragement and advice during the match that she told them to shut up. Shut up. Your childhood
3: made you an angry person. It's not against some, someone is angry about myself right. because I think I didn't do good enough.
4: Because of the echo of the coach in your head and you were kind of beating up on yourself a lot. Yeah,
3: maybe because pretty deep, you know, so it's Scar not. Scar tissue. Yeah, it's not easy to forget or take off.
4: Another cause of her anger was that she was competing against Western players who had their own personal coaches and trainers, while she did not. She felt the government-run system was holding her back. When she complained about this publicly, the head of China's tennis program denounced the shortcomings of her morals. You were having difficulty with the system, not just then, repeatedly all through this period.
3: I think maybe this was sort of a catalyst for me getting my own team.
4: She got her own team and was allowed to keep a much larger share of her winnings after the 2008 Olympics. Zhang Bendu, a Chinese tennis writer, says it was a stunning development in Chinese sports.
3: After 2008 Olympic game, we have four or five Chinese players uh, all get more freedom. They can have their own coach, uh, decide their own schedule. but the, but you have to pay your own coach, yeah, and the, uh, your your uh, flight tickets.
4: But it was seen as a as a big. I
3: it's don't a, know. It's a big change.
4: The change put a lot of pressure on Lena's husband, Dennis, who at times also served as her coach and punching bag. Yeah, come if you don't want to watch, you should just get out of here. You don't need to put on such a stinky face. Is the way I'm playing embarrassing you?
0: I just want to talk to you about.
3: Get lost.
4: And in her post-game interviews, Dennis became the butt of her jokes.
3: Yeah, because I didn't have a good evening last night, my husband sleep like, like this, you know? <laughs> you know, sometimes I just make the joke. Did you take it as a
6: joke? I don't want to answer that question.
4: During one very difficult period, Dennis left her and Lina was devastated. They reconciled and have been inseparable ever since, even making TV commercials together. The extent of her popularity in Asia is hard to overstate. Li Na has more than 20 million followers on China's social media. Time magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And last year, Forbes named her the second highest-paid female athlete. If she hadn't fought for more freedom, she would have to have given 65% of her income to the state. Last year, she made an estimated $24 million, and she very publicly thanked her agent.
3: Max, agent, make me rich. Thanks a lot.
4: Advertisers see her as a way into the lucrative Chinese market. Her sponsors include Mercedes-Benz, Rolex, and Nike. Her ad campaigns are aimed at Chinese youth
3: who are attracted to Li Na's feistiness and courage. I think young people love her because not only she can win the champions, but also uh, she dared to say no to the system. She dared to get out of the system.
4: After her victory at the French Open in 2011, she fell into an awful slump. She hired Argentinian coach Carlos Rodriguez to get her back on track, and he told her she needed to strike at the source of her anger. So Lina met with her old nemesis, Coach Yu, and told her how her coaching methods had hurt her. So was there a release for you in in being able to tell her and looking her in the eye?
3: Well, after that, this burden was gone. Carlos knew what to do. Yeah, he's a very good coach, a very
4: good psychologist. Her improved attitude paid off at the 2014 Australian Open when she won her second Grand Slam and became number two in the world. In her victory speech, she thanked Dennis and brought down the house.
3: Thanks for him, Give up everything, just traveling with me. Thanks a lot. You're a nice guy. And also, you are so lucky. Find me.
4: The system wanted to take credit for the victory. When she returned home, Coach Yu was sent to greet her with a hug for the cameras. Lena looked happier when she was slapped. Evidence of Li Na's influence can be found in the rising number of private tennis academies that have opened up around Beijing with sophisticated training techniques. A new generation of young women want to be the next Li Na. No one calls it fuzzy ball anymore. But shortly after her Australian victory last year, she stunned the tennis world, announcing her retirement. At 32, after multiple surgeries, her tired knees were giving out, and so she decided to say goodbye. She left the game with tears and some regrets. She even went out of her way to thank the sports system and her former coaches. She told us she planned to live in China, start a tennis academy here, and raise a family with Dennis. You would like to have children? Yeah. I would love to have at least two. You don't want to make any announcements on 60 Minutes, do you?
3: (laughs) No, 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 no. No, no. not yet. Not yet. Okay. All right. All right.
4: But at this year's Australian Open, she had an emotional Uh, secret to share with the crowd.
3: Me and Dennis, we are so excited. first child will be all of this summer.
4: After all her dramas and her courageous fight to control her own career, Lina says she's at peace, even with the stern and demanding sports system that got her here, the tennis parent of her youth. Since our story first aired, Lena gave birth to a healthy baby girl. When she's older, Lena and Dennis say they'll let her decide whether she wants to play tennis. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. And tomorrow, be sure to watch CBS This Morning.
0: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad free